Let's open with prayer. God, as we step into your word, as we step into this story of Ruth, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that you have to say to us through this. Help us to understand how this speaks to our situations, how this shows us truth about our own lives, about our own place, about our own relationship with you. As we approach this God in the Ordinary series in the evenings, help our hearts and our minds to prepare for what it means to find you in the ordinary, what it means to experience you in the small things. In your name, amen. So when I was growing up, I had a, a favorite movie. Actually, I don't know exactly if I had a favorite movie myself so much as I was informed by my dad that this was his favorite movie and that it was going to be my favorite movie. In fact, it had better be my favorite movie if you know I wanted to be cut in on the will. Uh, my dad doesn't really connect to movies uh, that often. At least I don't think of him really as a movies guy, but this movie he loves. And because he loves it so much... Whether we were forced to as kids or whether we came about it organically, me and my siblings learned to love this movie as well. And when my boys are old enough, I'm going to sit down with them and I'm going to do my best to force it to become their favorite movie too. I've got a short clip of it for you. And for some of you, I imagine this is going to be as nostalgic uh, for you as it is for me. You'll recognize it right away, some of you. Uh, this is from the opening scene uh, of the movie. Grandfather's here. Mom, can't you tell me I'm sick? You're sick. That's why he's here. He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey! How is this sick? Huh? I think I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is there any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. So, for our family, just like this grandpa and son here, the princess bride is this story that's been told down through generations, and it's got everything in it. It's full of adventure and romance and highs and lows and engaging characters and risk and, uh, and reward and all of these things. And for me and my brothers and sisters, what happened is the princess bride almost became kind of another language for us. We could quote the movie forwards and backwards. We could hold entire conversations basically just with princess bride quotes. 
Uh, in fact, it became this sort of thing that connected us and gave us a, maybe a special history or a special thing that we could speak about, shared traditions that we had. And as we watched it over and over again, little lines or phrases or jokes began to take on more and more significant meaning uh, because of their repetition. We could be out for a meal somewhere, or we could be sitting down in the evening in our living room and, and, and dropping the right line at the right place, dropping an inconceivable, or I'm going to get the accent. This is going to be a good accent. Prepare yourselves. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> or uh, anybody want a peanut? Those lines could have people in tears laughing, and, and the words on their own mean nothing, right? Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy when I say those things because they don't mean much. But for some of you who've seen the movie, maybe those lines have significance uh, for you too. And these things became a tool uh, for relationship building in our family, a tool to connect us to each other, to communicate our history together. And I'm overstating this all a little bit. It's not like our whole lives revolved around uh, this movie, but this with a thousand other things and a thousand other stories are what drove relationship for us in many ways. They're what drive our understanding of the world and how we connect to each other, these shared stories that we have. So several months ago when we were talking through the Psalms, I spent a bit of time talking about the power of story, about how we as humans are designed, we're hardwired to connect with and to engage with and to picture ourselves in the middle of a story, how stories give us important tools to connect with deep truths. And when we look at scripture, especially the Old Testament, in a world before most could read, and even if they could, access to the written word was incredibly limited, the best way to communicate was story. So today, we are going to be looking at one of these stories that got told over and over and over again through the Israelite history that became important enough to the Jewish people, to be included in the Old Testament, even though it doesn't really fit in well with a lot of the other books. It's the story of Ruth. And there are a few things about this book, a few interesting things that should sort of make us sit up and pay attention right as we get going, even before we've started the book. Some things that make Ruth really special right off the bat. Uh, there's four of them that I'm going to address. So we'll go through the first three pretty quick. I'm going to stay on the fourth one for a bit. Uh, the first one is this. It's one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman. So that's significant. It's unique about the book. What's the other book that's named after a woman in the Bible? It's Esther, yeah. Second, it is the only book in the Bible named after a Gentile, a non-Israelite. So right away with these two things, there is something that is special or different about this book. In a culture at that time, and generally a whole world that tended to think of things in sort of patriarchal terms, in male-led terms, where women didn't really have agency, where women didn't really have significant value outside of being a trade chip for marriage or childbirth or furthering the line of the family, and certainly often didn't have much of a voice. And then in a group of people who thought of themselves very much as the Israelites, us against the world, this chosen group of God's people who saw Ruth's people, the Moabites, as enemies, it's hugely significant that the writers and the compilers of the Old Testament made space for these sorts of stories to be heard. And we believe that they were directed and guided by the Holy Spirit as they did that. Third, it's, it's sort of a unique book because it's so zoomed in on a particular story. 
The, the other books in the Old Testament are books of law, or wisdom, or poetry, or prophecy. Uh, and the history that's there, the history books, tend to be these big, uh, important books about all of Israel, about kings, and heroes, and prophets, and the fate of the nation hanging in the balance. But Ruth is kind of unique in the Old Testament as just being sort of a simple narrative story, a zoom in with a microscope on just a couple of specific people that could easily have been missed or skipped in the big picture. No kings involved, no prophets, no priests, no wars. It's just a simple, short story about these two women, Naomi and Ruth, basically inconsequential women, powerless and outsiders. But what a story it is. It reads like a movie. You can picture these things playing out in your head as you go, the emotion and the drama of it. You could describe it as like that grandpa describes the Princess Bride at the beginning. It's got adventure and it's got intrigue and risk and reward and peril and tragedy and boldness and bravery and romance and loyalty and friendship and tension and miracles and all these sorts of things packed in to this short little book. Maybe it takes 20 minutes to read all the way through. And the fourth thing is this. It's actually especially interesting to me where this book tended to be read in the Jewish calendar. And it's interesting because it gives us really important insight into how Israel, how the Jewish people interacted with this book, this story, what they thought about it, what it told them about their understanding of themselves and their relationship with God. So the book of Ruth, this personal story about this foreign woman, has traditionally been read during the Feast of Pentecost. Now, for Christians, we associate Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And that's really needed in a lot of ways, actually, because the original focus of Pentecost revolved around Mount Sinai, this place where God, or Moses goes up and speaks with God and is given the Ten Commandments. So in both Christian and Jewish understandings of Pentecost, it centers around this direct personal connection between God and humanity. And the Ten Commandments for the Jewish people were much more than just a set of rules. For Israel, they defined their understanding of how God interacts with us and how we interact with God. It gave meaning to their past, it established their future, and it ordered their everyday lives. Because God had chosen them, suddenly there was no such thing as coincidence anymore. Life wasn't just a random series of experiences. It was a narrative. There was a plot and a structure and a purpose and a design, and every detail was a part of a larger story. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's the author of the message, he writes about this idea, and he says that the Sinai event is a kind of axle that holds together two different realities. And this is very much going to form the theme that we grab onto over these chapters. If you remember one thing out of this series, let it be this general concept. God's presence in our lives, as the Jews experienced at Sinai, and for that matter, as the church experienced, the Christian church at Pentecost, connect these two things. First, I am chosen. And second, therefore, my choices matter. Because God has chosen me, has chosen us, then my choices, our choices, matter. They have consequence. 
And we see this reflected in the Ten Commandments. Uh, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verses 2 to 3, it reads this way. This is Moses speaking the word of the Lord. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So that first sentence is election. It's God choosing us. God's action gives us significance to our lives because he is the one who brought Israel out of the land of Egypt. Because he is powerful and he has chosen us, we have then been given power ourselves because of that value. The second part of that verse, as well as the commandments that follow it, follow it uh, show that it makes a difference whether we do or do not have other gods. It makes a difference whether we have graven images, whether we kill or whether we steal or whether we commit adultery. Sinai is a recognition of the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for us. He has saved us. He chooses us. He loves and values us. We matter to God. And because we matter, what we do matters. No matter how small, nothing is random or meaningless. Everything has purpose. And so this is why Israel could write stories in this way. This is why a book like Ruth finds its way into the canon. One of the significant reasons Ruth was traditionally read at Pentecost is that it showed that no story is too small to matter. Just because you aren't a king or a ruler or a prophet doesn't mean that you aren't significant. Ruth and Naomi are widows, are women, are outsiders, are homeless foragers, are tragic nobodies, but because they are chosen and loved by God, therefore what they do matters. It has significance. So we're going to keep coming back to that over the next weeks. But hold it in your mind and recognize that to the Jews, this story fit in perfectly with their understanding of those two truths. God has chosen us and rescued us. And because we are chosen, our own choices have consequence, have impact. Nothing is random. Nothing is coincidence. Everything fits into story. And so that's what excited me or caught me about this book. And, and you may have gotten ahead, on me, ahead of me and, and guessed why we are doing this book uh, this month with these God in the Ordinary sessions going on. And I wanted to pick something that I didn't want to just repeat what we're talking about in those evenings, but I liked the idea of finding sort of a companion piece to it, sort of a, a cousin to it, something that's related to what we're doing in the evenings, and, and, and work through that together on these Sunday mornings. And this book, to me, fits that beautifully. It explores some of those themes in a really surprising uh, and engaging way. And there are a few different ways that I could have chosen to go through the book, that we could have gone through this together. One would have been to take a look at the whole story from a bird's eye view, and then to grab onto some themes or ideas that flow throughout. And there's a lot of merit to going that way, because... Actually, spoiler alert, there's a real last-minute twist at the end of Ruth that changes kind of everything that we read beforehand. So it could make sense to just look at the entire story and then zoom in on a couple of things. But the more I processed, the more I decided what would be fun would be to walk through this story together, chapter by chapter, kind of like a TV show that comes out one episode a week. And so you're going to be left with some questions at the end of some of these sermons, maybe. Some of these things are going to have cliffhangers. Not all of these things are going to resolve perfectly. There's going to be some unfinished thoughts, but together we're going to work our way sort of episodically, episode by episode, chapter by chapter, through 
uh, this story and take a look at these ordinary people, these everyday people living their lives, and begin to see how God is working through and in the midst of this simple personal tale. So, don't jump ahead. Don't be like my brother, who every book he picked up, he'd always read the last chapter first to decide whether it was worth getting started. Resist the urge to read the end. I promise you it's worth it to get to the end. It's a good ending. You're not going to be let down. But walk with us together over the next weeks. And today what I'm going to do is I'm going to simply read through Ruth chapter 1 with you. And as we go through, I'll stop sometimes to pause or to draw attention to something or to pull something out a little bit. But kind of like the grandpa in The Princess Bride, I just want to sit down beside you. Symbolically, I'm going to stay standing up here. But sit down beside you for today and for the next couple of weeks and, and walk through this story together with you as it's been read aloud for generations and generations before a God who has chosen us and that because of his choice, our choices, no matter how small or inconsequential, have eternal significance. So get comfortable. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth 1, chapter 1. And we'll read together. Ruth 1, 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. I'm going to stop there already. Now, every story has a few things in common. As you learned in school, maybe to be active listeners, there are things that you're told to listen for, right? Who, what, where, when, why, these sorts of active listening ideas. And right away here, we get to the when. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, in Israel's history, this was a notoriously uh, chaotic time. It was sort of this vicious cycle that Israel found themselves in where they would ignore what God wanted for them. They would kind of veer into worshiping other gods or immorality. And then they would get attacked and they would cry out to God and they would say, God, help us. And God would raise up a judge and they would be rescued and they would be happy, and then the cycle would repeat itself over and over again. Sin, and get in trouble, and cry out for help, and raise up a judge, and then sin, and then get into trouble, and then cry for help, and God would raise up a judge, and it would happen over and over again. But the heart of Israel was in moral decay, and even these judges that were getting raised up weren't all necessarily great people. It was just a bad time, generally, for the kingdom of Israel. In fact, there's a really good summary. If you're, if you're at Ruth 1.1, you can flip one page back in your Bible to the end of Judges. And the last verse of Judges gives a really great summary of the entire book of Judges and kind of to the character of the time at this place. The very last verse of Judges, this is Judges chapter 21, verse 25, reads this. This is the lead into Ruth. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. That was what characterized Israel at this time. And so in the middle of this chaos, in the middle of this turbulence, we get a kind of quiet, out-of-the-way contrast to that sort of craziness. We get to zoom in on this specific family and their specific journey. So let's keep reading. A famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, set out to live for a while in the country of Moab. I'm going to stop again. It's not all going to be like this. 
But this is our where. The story takes, begins by talking about this family from Bethlehem. And it's ironic because Bethlehem literally means city of bread. And in the city of bread, there is no bread. So they go to live in Moab just for a while. Just until things get better in Israel. And Moab is not a nice place in Israel's estimation. The beginning of the Moabites is in Genesis 19, where Lot has an incestuous relationship with his own daughter. That's the start of Moab, and it doesn't get much better uh, from there. There has not been a good relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites uh, through the years. Moab blocked them when they were searching for the promised land, and Moabite women especially had this reputation of being uh, seductresses. They were full of sexual immorality. They would come and steal away Uh, Israelite men, and Moab was a place with false gods and these evil women and an enemy of Israel. Uh, But because of the famine, this family is forced to head, of all places, uh, to Moab. Let's continue here. Uh, The man's name was Elimelech. His His wife's name was Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So very quickly, the name Elimelech means my God is king. So right from the get-go, we have a powerful contrast to the context that it's placed in. In the time of the judges, in the time when there was no king and everyone did as they saw fit, here is a story about a family led by a man named my God is king. A powerful statement in the midst of chaos. But the next three verses here are a tough ride. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband's husband. Ten years of tragedy, summed up in a few matter-of-fact Verses, But you can imagine Naomi's journey here. An Israelite forced to leave home into enemy territory to survive. You show up in this strange land, and then your husband dies. How? It doesn't say. But you can imagine the grief, and the pain, and the confusion, and the fear. A widow in a strange land. And then your sons go off and marry these seductresses these evil Moabite women, these outsiders, and you can imagine the tension that must have existed there. And worse than that, these two sons die. Again, we're not told how, but after 10 years in this strange land, she is now a widow with no sons, no one to carry on the family name, no prospects, no power, nothing but these two daughters from another land. The personal heartbreak And the tragedy that is packed into these verses is enough to fill an entire book, but the author just lays it out simply. No judgment or commentary. And sometimes what isn't said is as important as what is said. And it's important to note that the writer here doesn't condemn Naomi. He doesn't say it's her fault, she should never have left Israel, she should never have let her sons marry these women. There's no sense that this is a punishment for anyone's decisions. This is just tragedy. But we continue on. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness 
as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So Naomi understands that bringing these girls with her means they're, bringing up their, they're giving up their entire lives. Naomi's already lost everything. She's lost her chance at a family. She's lost her family name. But she recognizes that these women still have a chance, still have an opportunity. So in this intensely emotional exchange, she tells them to leave. It's a powerful act of sacrifice. These women may be Moabites. They may not be blood relatives, but they are all that Naomi has left. And she sets them free. And all this stuff reads like a movie script in some ways. These beautiful speeches, the way that everything is staged and laid out. The writer creates this clear emotional narrative flow to these things. And it continues. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. So Orpah leaves. She has every right to. It's probably the smart move. And again, there's no judgment from the narrator on this choice. She just leaves. But Ruth, Ruth clings. She wraps herself around Naomi. It's actually the same word used in Scripture for the first picture of marriage. Genesis 2, verse 24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. Ruth covenantally binds herself to Naomi, and in that moment delivers one of the great passionate speeches in all of Scripture. Verse 16, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. These words of loyalty and commitment have been turned into poetry and song and art. These words from Ruth have echoed powerfully throughout history as different writers have grabbed on to them and their truth. It meant leaving everything behind for Ruth, everything that she knew to go into a land where she understood the people could be hostile towards her. Uh, even the line, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried, has huge significance culturally. In a lot of religions in that time, the place where you were buried, in relation to your family, in relation to your ancestors, in relation to your cultural group, had huge implications for where you ended up in the afterlife. Ruth is saying, I forfeit all that is safe, known to me in this world and the next, for eternity for the rest of my life here and for the afterlife, I am leaving behind my old life and I am clinging to you. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. 
Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So there's two things I want to draw out of this speech. It's a tough speech to take. Uh, First of all, I want to quickly talk about how God is talked about in this chapter, or mentioned in this chapter. The writer here actually never brings up God directly. Instead, whenever God is brought up, he's always mentioned by somebody in the story. And it's an important distinction because it's the difference between a narrator going, this is the truth about God and who he is, and a character who is wrestling with the nature of God, who may be right or may be wrong, who may or may not have the full picture, who's existing in that moment. And so Naomi's statements of who God is, that the Lord has afflicted her or has brought misfortune on her, those statements are less about the truth of what God has done and more about where she is at emotionally, what she is wrestling through. And so we might read that, we might go, that doesn't fit in with my understanding of God and who God is And that's okay. The writer isn't actually making a statement here about God. He's making a statement about pain and about loss and about grief and about how we wrestle. Uh, And it's a deeper statement than we see at first in English. There's an important clue in the Hebrew words that she chooses for God because in the midst of this sort of cry for help, she has two different names for God and they both show up twice. Uh, In the NIV, these show up as the Almighty and the Lord. And the Hebrew words are Shaddai, and Yahweh. And Shaddai is a word that is literally derived from the Hebrew word that means breast. It, it refers to God as a sustainer, like a mother that nurses a child, a God that gives us all that we need, who cares for us, who freely gives us nourishment and blessing. And Yahweh speaks of a God who is set apart and fully holy, has absolute power, and is in absolute control. And so we feel in this with Naomi This wrestling, this journey that so many of us have walked before, trying to reconcile these two truths. God is good, and God is powerful, and so then how are these things happening to me? If God is truly good, and if God is truly powerful, then why, Naomi says, is my life turning into this horror story? into this tragedy. How can that be true with who God is? She is wrestling through these things. That might be the oldest and toughest question that we are going to ask ourselves here on earth. If God is powerful and in control, and if God is good and blesses us and sustains us, then why does tragedy come our way? Why do we come up empty, end up with misfortune? And so Naomi is wrestling through these thoughts and feelings. And if the chapter ended there, whew, it would be a tough ending. And I wouldn't blame you maybe for skipping out next week going, I don't actually need to hear more of this. This is, this is not the sort of thing that I signed up for. But we get one more verse in this chapter. Just a sliver of hope. Just a little breath of life into the story that seems to have nowhere to go but down. Earlier in the chapter it says, Naomi left Israel full and she and Ruth have come back together empty. But the last verse of chapter 1 as they return to the city of bread is this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. These starving women return home, but God is already growing something in the land that they enter. There is a process that's already begun here. There are things that are already in motion. And so with that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up.
And I'll invite you to tune in next week as our story continues. Amen. <laughs>